I'm wondering who was here, uh, I think when we were here last time, it was in 2005. So who, who was here when, uh, when I preached here in 2005? Wow, quite a few. So I think I told a story and I was debating whether to, to, to tell the, the same story. So if you've ever heard it, uh, just laugh along or whatever. Or <clears throat> I'm kind of the brunt of the joke, and so that's why it's kind of a good story. Is <clears throat> you know, people think, is it important to learn a language when you go to another country? So this is, this is my illustration of the importance of learning a language. So we went to the Czech Republic in 1994. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, of course, our first few years was devoted to, to learning the Czech language, which is considered the fourth most difficult language in the world for English speakers. I'm not totally sure what number one, two, and three are, but uh, Czech is, is known as number four, most dif- difficult in the world. And so we'd been there uh, just in language school for maybe three or four months. And the first thing that hit me is after three months of intense language school, I was walking on the sidewalk, and a man, uh, was, he had let his dog outside, and he was calling his dog. And I realized that the dog knew better Czech than I did. Because the dog, and I thought I haven't even reached the level of a dog yet after three or three months of intensive language study. Well, so you know, I continued to study uh, this very, very difficult language, <clears throat> and uh, you know, they were just beginning their free market economy, and so these these uh, they set up these like kiosks. Is that English? Uh, these kiosks across from the high rise that we were living in, and men were trying to sell some different. People were selling these different little items. And so I would go over there, and I would practice my check by going to these little booths because nobody would go there yet. And so I would go around, and I would practice my check on these different shopkeepers. And uh, <clears throat> so and then I would always, you know, it's like I've taken up their time, so then I'd feel like, well, maybe I should buy something. So I was there one day, and uh, one man had these sausages. Uh, does anybody remember the story? Okay, good. So one man had these sausages hanging, uh, hanging from his, his booth, and I said, oh, oh what's, what's that? And he said, uh, you know, of, of course, I'm, I'm seeing it in Czech, so it's very, very broken, and, and he didn't speak English. So I said, oh, what's that? And he said, oh, it's uh, like, a, like a duck meat sausage. It's like, oh, is it good? He goes, oh, yeah, very good, very good. And so uh, I said, okay, I'll take one. So it was about this long, and I, so I took it home and, and uh, cut it open. My, kid, uh, my kids were home, and they had some of their friends over, so... I cut this sausage open. It was like this dark, deep red with big chunks of fat in it. So I cut it, and I gave it to each one of the kids, and they wouldn't touch it. And uh, so, but I thought, you know, we're here to be missionaries. Uh, food is a bridge into a culture. It's actually a very important part when you go to another culture is if you can learn to appreciate their food. It's really a bridge. So I thought, you know, food is, I've learned this in missions class, food is a bridge. If the Czechs eat this, I'm going to learn to eat it too. So... I put it on a sandwich, and I ate it, and it tasted very, very strong, had a very, uh, really a bad smell to it. But I kept thinking, you know, if the Czechs eat this, I'm going to learn to eat it too. So uh, I would come home from language school each day, and I'd get out this sausage out of the refrigerator, and I would cut it and put it on some bread and, and did this day after day. And after about uh, five or six days, it began to smell so bad that I had to put it, you know, you'd open the refrigerator, and the smell would just hit you, and so... I'd put it in a Ziploc bag, and I would shut the, shut the Ziploc bag, and I would get it out, and you know, the smell would hit. And, but I thought, you know, if the Czechs eat this, I'm going to learn to eat it too. And so this went on about 10 days, and finally I opened it up, and it got so bad that I would actually start to, start to gag because the smell was so strong when I would open this, 
It's like, man, you know, and I, I kept eating it, and I was like, man, I, I wonder if this stuff's getting bad. So I said to my wife, do you think this stuff's getting bad? She's like, well, I don't know, Michael. <laughs> uh, and she said, uh, so it's like, I'm going to go ask the guy, you know, how long this stuff lasts. And so I went back over to the booth, and I said, uh, uh, how long does this, you know, I'm saying it in Czech again, how long does this stuff last? And he says, oh, about one month. It's like, oh. I said, so how do I know when it goes bad? And he said, as long as your dog will eat it. <laughs> so, so the sign said, propsi, which means four dogs. So, uh, which I did not know that word. <clears throat> but then he said to me, but if you like it, you can eat it too. And he... <laughs> so it, there are reasons to learn the language when you go to another country. <clears throat> so, of course, after that, I've received many gifts of dog food from my coworkers in, in Czech. So I'll be speaking today from John, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, one short verse. And before I get, begin, I'd just like to say it's good to be here. Uh, we, heard, uh, we heard on the news of all that was going on here uh, two weeks ago, and it sounded like you guys really, really took a pounding. And uh, I think there's been many people across America that have been praying for you here on, in New York. So we're glad that we can be here with you, and we appreciate uh, your prayers for us, your support over the years, uh, the way that you partnered with our, with our ministry. We had a joy of serving uh, in the Czech Republic. Of course, whenever you serve somewhere and you're doing church planning in a place like that, uh, we went through, we have many battle scars, and there was many difficulties, but we're thankful that we can leave behind uh, a, church, a church that's functioning and healthy and growing with many children, many people, many visitors. Uh, but in the last years, uh, I've just developed more and more of a heart to come alongside other missionaries to see that so often when you're out there doing something, you get so wrapped up in what you're doing and, and serving, and, and little by little, we can kind of lose our, our hearts. And so I've had a passion to come alongside other missionaries, other pastors, other men in ministry, and just to help them to still their hearts and to remember why they went into the in ministry in the first place, and to just rekindle, uh, rekindle their hearts for the Lord. Over and over when I spend time with men, the thing I hear him say is, you know, I know it all up here, but for some reason I just can't connect it to what's going on in my heart. And they live with that day after day, and, um, and so instead of really addressing it, even in, in the ministry, it's easy just to get busy and to do other things and just not to think, well, maybe, maybe I'm supposed to just tell other people about all this, but not necessarily experience it in my own life. And so it's been my my desire to come alongside other men and just help them to, to slow down and to just be rekindled in connecting all that information that we know about God and help it to become a little more real, a little more alive in their own lives. And I do that by taking men on spiritual retreats, a few men at a time that we go off and spend time in solitude and just sharing at a deeper level with one another. So that's what I'm doing now. It's kind of a new, it's a new thing with team. And... Um, but I love it. I love to see uh, how when we just give God a little room, how the Lord 
speaks into our lives and rekindles that. And I, I just, I love what I'm doing now. So, <clears throat> the title of my message is Living Missionally, the Jesus Way. And I think, boy, if there's any way that we want to live missionally, it's why not do it the Jesus way. Um, the word missional, I don't know about here in Long Island, but if you, uh, in America today, it just seems like it's, it's a buzzword. Uh, you hear it, there's probably 30, 40 books. If you were to Google, look on Amazon.com or to go into a Christian bookstore, there's all kinds of books on the missional church. Uh, so <clears throat> I would like to talk about, uh, take a few minutes about uh, what this means, the missional church. Most churches in today are what the people that are writing the books about missional churches. And I don't know if that's something that you've heard, that you've talked about, or is that a totally foreign word when you think of the word missional church? Or uh, I don't know here, but anyways. Uh, so uh, the people that write the books, they say there's really two types of churches. There's missional churches and what they would call attractional churches, which um, this would probably be more of an attractional church model, which means that uh, the church attracts people to the building, uh, by ads or by other people in the church inviting people, uh, sign out front, uh, reputation in the community. And so you're, it's attracting people into the building. And the growing concern by the people that are writing the books is, are these. That as America becomes more unchurched, there are more and more people who will not visit a church in their spiritual search. So in other words, the cultural distance in America between the churched and the unchurched is growing. And I would think that you would have seen that in the last years, the last decade in America. And the other is, when someone does come to Christ, they are often taken out of their area of influence among the unchurched and transplanted into the attractional church Christian subculture, thus losing influence among their closest friends. So often we take people out of the place where they have influence, they become part of the kind of the Christian subculture, and they no longer have that influence. So... With these tensions in mind, the missional church has formed. It is not really new, but it has taken on a new form. At its core, it says this, we need to go be the church among the unchurched. And this has sparked many missional communities that come together to live faith simply in highly relational settings that keep people living missionally in their circles of influence. And these communities can multiply easily and quickly. And in fact, this is really, team has really embraced this in Europe, uh, that there's so few pastors and uh, it's so hard to go through the whole process of getting the building that that's really the strategic model now for team in Europe is the missional church model that can be easily reproduced, that doesn't always rely on having a lead pastor. Uh, I think it's Maybe a little bit controversial, but I think in Europe it's, it's really the way to go. The church has gotten so, so uh, off to the margins. <clears throat> it has also led to a lot of people that are saying they're, they're being missional. Uh, I'm not sure, again, if you've never heard this word, but in there are some cities, a lot of young people are saying we're being missional, and they spend all their time in the pub, and they drink a lot of beer, uh, and they say we're being missional, but in reality what they're doing is avoiding uh, authority issues and, yeah, and consuming a lot of beer. So there's, I think, some very good things to the missional, and there's also, I think, some, some dangers with missional uh, thinking. The next word I would like to discuss is the word missionary. Being missional 
and being a missionary are not the same thing. And that's why, in a way, I guess I wanted to bring this up, is I think now with a lot of the missional churches, they use a lot of missionary-type words, and there's starting to be a blur of we're being missionaries when we're being missional in our own community. And so I guess to me it's important that we know the difference between being missional and being a missionary. So this is how I would define a missionary. Someone recognized with a calling and sent out by the local church who leaves their own culture, learns their new host culture, and learns how to be missional in their new host culture. And it usually involves leaving America. And we often think of living missionally or being a missionary as an activity. And while it obviously involves activity, I would like to propose that activity is only one aspect of what it means. And I think this is really the core of what my message is going to be about, that we so often think that being a missionary is an activity, and while it is, there's so much more to it, and if we don't get that, then our activities become, uh, it affects our activities. So let me read John chapter 1, verse 14. I was going to read chapter, uh, verses 1 through 18, uh, but I, just for the sake of time, I'll just read the one verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And if you're here as a visitor, uh, this was John chapter 1, and it's on, on your pew Bible, it's, it's uh, page 1,259. <clears throat> Tell you what, I think I'll pray before I begin my message. Father, as we look at your word, I pray that you would, uh, that you would help me to speak well and to communicate what you would have us to hear. And Lord, in another way, I just ask that I could get out of the way and that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, what a privilege to know that the God of all creation would desire to speak to us. And so, Lord, help us to be undistracted now, and to hear what you'd have to say to us. In your name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so my first point, uh, and another thing is I'm going to start at the bottom of this verse. Usually we start at the top of the verse and work our way down. I'm starting at the back of the verse and moving up. <clears throat> so Jesus came full of grace and truth. That's point one. Point two will be, we have seen his glory. And point three will be, he became flesh and dwelt among us. I was originally going to make uh, these into two points, this very first one, of full of grace and truth. I thought I'll make one point grace and one point truth. But the more I thought about it, I thought to myself, you know, I think actually that's our problem. We too often separate these. And in Christianity, they can never, ever be separated. Someone who gets truth but doesn't get grace is off base. And so is someone who gets grace but doesn't get truth. And we talk a lot about truth heresy, but I think we can also be in grace heresy just as much as we can be living in truth heresy. One of our daughters <clears throat> came home upset from school one day when we were living in Prague. Both of our kids were attending a Christian 
English-speaking school the last few years we were there, and it was exam time. And during exam time, the teachers were only supposed to be reviewing and not be giving new information. And our oldest daughter actually has a learning disability, so that is very important for her uh, to, uh, that she wouldn't be getting new information. But one of her professors, uh, or teachers, continued, uh, continued to give new information when it was supposed to be review time. So my, my daughter came home from school, and she was very upset. And so my wife encouraged her, said, you know, why don't you, why don't you uh, instead of just complaining about it, why let's uh, practice good communication. The school <laughs> says they want good communication between the teachers and the students. So, uh, so my daughter sat down, and she wrote the teacher an email and talked to the teacher about uh, her concerns. And we were rather proud of our daughter for being assertive instead of uh, ho holding that all in. So uh, the next day at school, the teacher said to the class, we will not be having our exam today because one of you complained. Then with a bit of condensation, he proclaimed condescension. Conde condescension, yeah. He proclaimed, this is grace, folks. And I call this a grace heresy because his attitude is, is this. I don't want to, but I guess I have to. And in so doing, he left a sense of shame on my daughter. And this shame, he then labeled as grace. So why is this grace heresy? Because it portrays God like this. God, in all his grace, would be I really hate to let my children off the hook and forgive their sins, but I guess I have to. I don't think that's what we see. John says Jesus came full of grace and truth. And the emphasis in these, this verse right here, the emphasis is actually on the grace more so than even on the truth. He goes on in verse 16, and, he, and it says, And from his fullness, as the Godhead, as a member of the Trinity... We receive grace upon grace. In other words, just when we think we get it, we get more. It just keeps coming. Just when we think we are understanding God's grace, there's more to it. This is not a barely enough to cover our sins type of grace. This is super abundant grace. I think if any one of us here could spend 24 hours in God's presence, and come to a full understanding of what his grace really is. If we could just sit and breathe it in for 24 hours, I think our lives would be changed forever. In Jesus, grace means that we are pursued by the very one we have most greatly offended. It means the God of all creation, the God of all creation is for me. He pursues me. He lays down his life for me. He desires me. I think God enjoys me. He calls me his child. He loves me. And he forgives me. Wow. That's grace. But we struggle. I think every one of us. We struggle receiving this for ourselves. And in our shame, we often spread our shame. 
in our gut, we often feel that God is disappointed with us. And this so easily turns into us performing for God. Thinking, if I just do one more thing, maybe he will like me. And you know, that's not just a few people that struggle with that. I think a large majority of us struggle with those kind of things. And so the result is, we share the message of grace with our mouth, but we live with an image within of an angry, disappointed, distant God. And this is where many of us journey. And in this journey, we need encouragement. We need to be able to talk about it. We need to be able to say, man, can you pray for me? We need to be able to say, this is the honest way that I really am struggling with my relationship with God. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Truth needs to be proclaimed, but truth proclaimed that it's not truth lived is not the Jesus way. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, Timothy, a young man, he said to this, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So why did he say keep a close watch? Because we easily stray. I graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 1993, and we left for the Czech Republic in 1994, and we went through rigorous doctrinal interviews with team before we could go, which I'm thankful for. Again, the truth is also important. But if there's one area I wish I would have at that time, and still even today, had a greater grasp upon, is the wonder of God's grace in my life and how that really looks in ministry. I'm concerned that many of us who proclaim the good news of the gospel are stuck in the old way of the law ourselves. We get stuck in a performance trap in our relationship with God. And the result is God's grace becomes an abstract theological concept. Let me give another illustration. In the Czech language, there's not a word for the word Uh, accountability. And so the closest word they have would translate like uh, responsible. So if you're, so if we're talking about uh, we want to have accountability partners, uh, to them it would be like a, a responsibility partner, which really is something totally different. So you can't really use a word to explain what you mean. So if you really want someone to understand what an accountability partner is, you start meeting with them and you start asking questions, and you develop this accountability relationship, and then after you've done that, then you can point back to it, and you can say, that's what an accountability partner is. And I think it's very similar with the word grace. Just like accountability doesn't translate into the Czech culture, you really have to model it and show it, and then you can explain what it is. I think the same thing is true in grace. Most of us have heard the word grace, but in many, in many ways, it's still in some ways is a, it's a foreign word for us. It's not tangible. We can't quite get our hands on it, and so it becomes, it leaves, it's left abstract. And definitely for the unchurched, definitely grace is a foreign word. So you could say that in a way we have to kind of live it and live in it, in God's grace, and be able, and then we can kind of show it to other people instead of just telling them about what God's grace is. Does that make sense? 
Paul writes, 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Scoundrels. Not just kind of bad people. <clears throat> people who sin through and through. People that even when they are trying to do good, they have selfish motives. And Paul says this, of that kind of person, I'm the foremost of all. In other words, Paul is like saying, you know what, you don't know the half of what has gone on in my heart. It's ugly. And we can stay there if we want, but here's the rest. Where sin did abound, where I'm the lowest down scoundrel that there is, grace much more abounded. Grace super abounded. He says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.20 But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace in my life and yours. God's grace. He's for us, even in the midst of our low-down, scoundrel-like living. So what does that look like in your life and mine? On a daily basis. When you're going to work, when you're with your family, what does it look like to live in the realization and the understanding and the goodness of God's grace? I think the answer to that question is what makes us missional. I think one grace-filled believer is much more missional than ten who get all the strategies, the techniques, the methods, the right way to do it, whatever the particular right way to do it is. I think the world is desperate for grace and truth. I think the church is desperate for grace and truth. And I think my life, and I think maybe your life, that we're desperate for grace and truth. It is out of the realization of our own brokenness and living in grace, not performing, not trying harder, but out of the realization of our own brokenness and living in grace that we have a message to live and a message to proclaim. So that was point number one, grace and truth. Point number two, and we beheld his glory. It's right there in the middle of verse 14. John says, and we beheld his glory. <clears throat> Listen to how John describes Jesus in verse 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Wow. Everything is created by him. What a description of our Lord. John caught a glimpse and now in verse 14, as he describes Jesus, it's like he stops mid-sentence as he's talking about, as he's describing this, he stops mid-sentence and then he says, and we beheld his glory. Jesus appeared to a lot of people, and a lot of people beheld him as a man. 
a good man, a great man, a good teacher. But most people did not behold his glory. The word here that John uses to, for behold, it has the meaning of a long, careful, thoughtful look. It includes the physical, but it goes beyond. It is contemplative. The more one looks, the more one sees. If we think of obedience as a long walk in the right direction, I think to behold is a long look. Wait, let me say that again. Obedience is a, a, obedience is a long walk in the right direction. Did I say wrong direction? <laughs> so let me say that one more time. <clears throat> if we think of obedience as a long walk in the right direction, to behold is a long look in the right direction. Hendrickson writes this in his commentary of John's beholding. He says, thus, thus, while John was walking among them, the eye of the evangelist and of other witnesses had fallen and rested on the incarnate word until some, to some extent they had penetrated the mystery. They had seen his glory. In other words, they looked so long, they beheld him so long that they began to see beyond and they saw the glory of who Jesus is. As Christians, we are beholders of the glory of God. Moses was walking through the desert with his sheep when it says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2 through 5. Let me read that to you. You don't have to turn if you don't want. Exodus 3, 2 through 5. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning. Yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. So you get the idea that Moses is walking along through the desert, and he could have walked right on by this bush that's burning. But he says, he paused and he said to himself, I will turn aside. And when the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside, it says, in other words, when, when God saw that Moses paid attention, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Moses paid attention, and it was life transforming. And after this, as we continue reading about the life of Moses, it's like Moses could not get enough of God. He sets up a tent outside the camp, and there he goes. And it says, and thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And out of this thirst of beholding God, of being with God, of being present with God, Moses finally says in Genesis chapter 30, or Exodus chapter 33, 18, he says to God, please show me your glory. Moses spent time with God on a mountain and came down glowing with God's presence, God's glory. In Moses, we see a man who took a long look in the right direction and beheld God's glory. Leighton Ford, in his book, I quoted from this book last night, in his book, The Attentive Life, describes prayer as attentiveness to God. Attentiveness to God. In other words, 
Prayer is simply any time we are present with or attentive to God. He then describes, defines sin as anything that, dis- that distracts us from being attentive to God. We can even be praying and not really be attentive to God. Or we can be riding our bike or doing something totally different and be attentive to God and actually be more in prayer than when we're praying, if that makes sense. In an article by Susan Phillips called Garden Versus Circus, she writes this. T.S. Eliot wrote that between the world wars, the metaphor that best described the landscape of culture was wasteland. People were turning away from faith and losing hope, and the culture was dry and barren, referring to England at the time, actually. Phillips suggests that the metaphor that best describes American culture today is that of circus. In our high-stressed world, we fill our lives with with frenetic activity and then swing into mind-numbing disengagement. We even use circus language, such as keeping too many balls in the air, jump through too many hoops today, walking a tight wire, etc. We often become impersonal spectators as we watch others perform in the ring, whether it be the political race, the economy, or a various war that's going on. Eventually, we hit the wall and numb ourselves until we are ready to head out for another performance. Leighton Ford writes, and I quoted this last night, Spiritual inattentiveness, I believe, comes in large part from our fear of being known for who we really are. Often we keep ourselves busy and distracted because we fear that if we slow down and are still, we may look inside and find nothing there. The typical American has too little margin, is on the run, over-busy, emotionally exhausted, distracted, and preoccupied. Meanwhile, Jesus talks about life in a garden. In John 15:1, Jesus, the master gardener, he trims his vines. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 7 and 8, blessed are those who trust in the Lord. They will be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots into a stream. A gardener who personally trims his vines living water that gives life, fruit that abounds, good soil that is tilled, a place where life takes place and the life within is tended to and given time. In the garden is relationship and there is time to behold his glory. You know, I think that's our greatest longing in life is relationship with others, and with God, and to behold his glory. We're longing for that, and we're so distracted we miss it. In the circus is frenetic activity, mind-numbing entertainment, distraction, preoccupation, and no time to sit in the wonder of the glory of God. It is a place of chatter, but with no true care of our souls or the souls of others. After great success in ministry, again, I quoted from this uh, last night, Elijah is stung by fear, by a threat from Jezebel, and runs for his life. 
And in 1 Kings chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 4, we find him under a broom tree after great success in ministry, crying out to God, I've had enough, I can't take any more. Take my life. Elijah is depleted. And to this, God ministers to him and sends him 40 days into the desert until at Mount Horeb he's able to hear God. Not in the whirlwind, not in the earthquake, but in a whisper. His heart had been stilled, and he was able again to pay attention, to be present. Elijah paid attention and heard the tender voice of God in a whisper. Moses paid attention and heard God call his very name. John paid attention and beheld the very glory of God in Jesus. And I think the world is desperate for men and women who will step out of the circus that often exists whether in the ministry or in the business world or somewhere in our lives, who will step out of the circus in some way, walk in the garden with the gardener and behold his glory. Third point. And the word became flesh and lived among us. Literally, it can be translated... And the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Eugene Peterson, in his, uh, in his uh, translation of the, the Bible called The Message, writes it like this. And the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Being missional or being a missionary cannot take place if we do not have a heart to enter into the lives of others. Just like Jesus pitched his tent among us. It means entering into their pain, their struggles, the reason for who they are and how they got there. And it requires love, it requires flexibility, and often letting go of many of our own assumptions and dogmas. I remember hearing a story long ago, actually back when I was at Moody Bible Institute, about a missionary that went and lived among a tribe <clears throat> a jungle tribe somewhere. And he cleared some, maybe you've heard the story, I think he actually read, wrote a book about it. He cleared some land and he planted pineapples to remind him of home. But just as the pineapples would get big enough to pick, the tribe that he worked among would come out of the jungle and pick his pineapples. He was enraged. He would run out of his house, yelling and screaming, but one by one, off they would go with his pineapples. Finally, the missionary He surrendered, or maybe he just had a breakdown. I'm not sure which one. They both happened. (laughs) He gave up protecting his pineapples, and he was thankful uh, that he had them, that the jungle people could take them. And it was that day that the tribe saw that this white man had come to faith. In their tribe, they shared all things. There was no ownership, so they did not see what they were doing as stealing. But the most offensive thing you could do in their tribe was yelling, screaming, and not sharing. Being missional means that we find ways to pitch our tent among them. I'd like to read a poem by Dr. Rivera Elliott Faustin entitled, You Don't Live on My Street. It's a bit of a gritty 
poem, but I hope you can catch the message of entering into another's world. I think it speaks of the need to go, listen, and learn before we give our answers. And in this poem, as I read it, listen to these different things that, these different, listen to the pain that belongs in these neighborhoods that she speaks of. And this kind of pain, uh, it's the type of pain that we experience, whether it's your next door neighbor or across the ocean. You're going to hear the pain of poverty, the pain of shame, the pain of a broken family, the pain of physical and sexual abuse, the pain of a family with drug and alcohol abuse, the pain of a learning disability, the pain of living in desperation and hopelessness, the pain of destructive choices, and the pain of living in fear. So I'd like to read the poem. You don't live on my street. So you want to know why I dropped out of school? How many times can you be called a fool? Ever since first grade, I've been called slow, so I wouldn't give the answer even if I did know. And how was I supposed to concentrate when I can't remember the last time I ate? Do you live every day with defeat? Then you don't live on my street. See, your mama's boyfriend ain't messing with you and putting his hands on your sister too. Nah, the seventh grade I didn't complete. But hey, you don't live on my street. You don't know a thing about me. But there are some things that you must see. Until you have walked in my shoes for a while and had a taste of my lifestyle. Until you have lived in my house and given a name to each mouse. Until you've seen your mama get beat, you don't live on my street. Until you have walked my walk, until you have talked my talk, until you have knelt down on my knees, until you have eaten my government cheese, until you have smelled life through my nose, until you have worn my pantyhose, until you have seen life through my eyes, until you have worn my dress size, until you have lived inside my head, until you have laid down in my bed, until you have been called by my name, until you have felt some of my shame, until you have sold some of my dope, until you have lost all of my hope, until you have stood under my reign, until you have felt some of my pain, until you have eaten what I've had to eat, then understand this, you don't live on my street. Wow, (laughs) a lot of pain described there. How do we enter in? I think the number one way is to listen. Not always to go with answers, but to listen. Listening helps us to enter into another person's world, to really listen, to learn to be present with another person, to listen, learn, and love. Boy, if we could learn that is our most strategic way of doing evangelism, is to learn, I'm sorry, to listen, to learn what's going on in that person's world, and to love. It gives us the understanding that we can speak and give wisdom with well-placed words. To listen, to learn, and to love.
there's not a whole lot of pressure. Sometimes we think, I can't do evangelism. I don't know all the right stuff. But, you know, there's not a lot of pressure in that. Listen. And as you listen, be a learner of what's going on in this person's world in their life. What have they been through? What pain have they lived in? To listen, to learn, and to love. And boy, when we've given that gift to somebody, we have something to share. Unless we are willing to go live on another street, may we not be too quick to give our handouts, our advice, our teaching and training, and call what we do missional or missions. And Jesus became flesh and blood, and he moved into our neighborhood. Grace and truth, not just proclaimed, but lived out through a broken people. (laughs) That's what we have to offer. We're not a good people. We're a broken people. We're not all put together. We don't have to pretend like it. We're a broken people. And our story is that I'm broken, but I got a good God who lives through me. Taking time to behold his glory. In other words, stepping out of the circus. It's not easy to do. And walking with the gardener in the garden. And number three, moving into the neighborhood. Willing to enter into the pain and cross the bridges that need to be crossed as a learner and a listener before thinking we have a right to speak. To many here, the name Jesus has become precious. He is our Savior and our Lord and our King. But to many in church today, the name Jesus and many other words that we use to describe the Christian life, they've become really foreign words. What do we do? How we live, I'm sorry, what we do, how we live, who we are, and what we say help fill up and model these words so they can be understand, understood, but also so they can be felt, smelled, and sink into what they really mean. We never perfect it. We are all pilgrims on the way. But movement in any of these puts us in the way of the Spirit and gives us the privilege of living purposeful, missional lives for our King. Amen. So, 